Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, the Other People podcast is a listener-supported program. It is offered freely, more than 560 episodes, almost 600 episodes and counting, all offered freely. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this program, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That is patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I, I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I, I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know? It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Hello, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy, and I am in Los Angeles, California. How's it going out there? How are you? You feeling all right? I am very excited to have... Pam Houston on the program today. She has a new uh, collection of linked essays out right now, available from W.W. Norton and Company. The book is called Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. And uh, I'm not going to do too much talking at the top of the show. I I had such a good time meeting Pam. I have known uh, of her and her work for a long time and have uh, sort of been an admirer from afar. So it was kind of a uh, nice experience to get to actually put a face with a name and to talk with her. And as a as a guy who used to live in Colorado, it was especially exciting to talk with her about that. Because, you know, for those of you who are not aware, Pam, for a number of years, has lived in Colorado uh, at altitude up in the high country on a 120-acre homestead. And that is a lot of what Deep Creek speaks to, among other things. So let's get to it, shall we? This is my conversation with Pam Houston, and her essay collection, One More Time, is called Deep Creek. I have always felt the best out in the natural world. Um, I I had violent alcoholic parents who just weren't that interested in being parents. And so from a very young age, I turned to nature for mothering, literally. I, I walked the railroad tracks in my neighborhood. I went camping. I By yourself? Uh, yeah. Often. Not always. Did you have a mentor? Like, did anybody show you? Yeah. There was a guy in our neighborhood named Colonel Bob Miller who 
when we were just little kids in the neighborhood, he would round up all the kids and we had to, this is Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and we had to ride under wool blankets in August in station wagons. And he would say, okay, we're going out west and oh, we just crossed the Mississippi, or there goes the wide Missouri. And uh, he would take us all, all the neighborhood kids from age like 5 to 15, to Monocacy Park in downtown Bethlehem. But we were riding under wool blankets. So What does that mean, under wool blanket? Like it, a covered wagon? We couldn't see. Okay. So you were, I'm thinking, like, is this like a sweat lodge? <laughs> no. He, he, he wanted us to believe we were going out west. And he stopped the car and got permission from the chief to enter... Uh, native lands and and you know obviously this guy sounds crazy he, well uh, people say that but he was basically one of a few people who saved my life as a kid and he taught us how to follow marks in the woods he taught us how to read a compass he taught us how to make a fire with wet wood he did all that stuff for all the kids in our neighborhood Wow! and i went every year i could go and then after i went to college i came back and helped him with the other kids so he's the one who taught me. Well, see, there's always somebody. There's always somebody. You know, it's like either a sibling who like shows you the way right. or somebody, you know, or Colonel, what was his name? Colonel Bob. Colonel Bob, Colonel Bob Miller. <laughs> and we all, I mean, it gets worse, but we all wore armbands <laughs> and we all had ranks. And if you fell asleep on your night watch or if you failed the bravery test, you got demoted. But if you passed those two things, you got promoted. So then, you know, the next year you could have the buck privates set up your cot for you. <laughs> and you were like the shining star. Yeah. Though. Yes. Yes. I was an overachieving yeah, member like an, of an Colonel an Bob's army. <laughs> uh, so that was it. That was the introduction. And you had, like, like you said, like a very difficult childhood, um, abusive parents. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, who doesn't, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't think I was special in that regard. You know what oh, I mean? But it was more difficult than, than my childhood. Uh-huh. I, I mean, you know, everybody, I guess right. everybody gets theirs. Like this, this actually brings up an interesting question of like, and I had this conversation recently on the show with somebody where I was like, I sometimes feel like I've had such a lucky go compared to thinking of people in like Syria or something. Sure. And, uh, and then it was like, well, you know, but everybody's suffering. And it's all valid and right. kind of relative. It's like hard to know how to measure your own suffering <laughs> and like how much uh, time to give it or I don't know. Do you ever struggle with that? Or I guess. Well, I, I teach at the Institute of American Indian Arts where many, many of my students are native and, you know, they're dealing with 500 years of genocide, you know, exacted upon them by our government, you right. know, and so that makes my suffering seem very, very minor. Um, I think, and it is in many ways, we had enough food to eat. You know, I had the wherewithal to get myself to college. You know, I had all kinds of advantages, even though, um, my dad broke my femur when I was four, you know, so that's a certain amount of suffering. I, I thought he would kill me all my childhood, but you know, I, as a writing teacher, you come to understand that those are sort of suburban traumas (laughs) and that are about as common as a two car garage. And so, um, you know, the, what, what Deep Creek's about is, 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 is where I turned, you know, where I turned to be parented and thanks to Colonel Bob and thanks to some other people and thanks to the books of Edward Abbey. And, you know, I, I, I went outside and, um, 
over the course of writing Deep Creek, you know, I, I sort of came to this point, well, yeah, I was born to two parents who wanted me not at all, but that's not the worst thing. I went out and found a much better parenting situation, you know, and, um, meaning, meaning the outdoors, meaning the outdoors and, and, and in particular, this ranch that I've been on for 25 years that I bought in a pure adrenaline rush, you know, I bought it. I mean, it was a crazy thing to do to buy it. I had no job. I was living in my North Face VE 24 tent and my yellow Toyota Corolla. And I had published one book, Cowboys Are My Weakness. Didn't have three pages of another book to rub together. By the way, uh, something my listeners might not be aware of, but cowboys are also my weakness. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, then we have that in common. Um, but anyway... Uh, saw this ranch, went on a drive looking for it. Um, when, uh, when Cowboys Are My Weakness sold, my agent had said, don't spend it all on hiking boots. And so I took that. invested it in real estate. I took that seriously as parenting advice. And I went looking for a place. And you knew you wanted to live in the mountains somewhere beautiful. Like, like, did you have like a criteria? Yes. I knew I wanted to live in the West. I had already been living in the West. I went to graduate school at University of Utah. So I'd already been living in the West for five or six years. No, almost 10 years at that point. And um, I was pretty sure I wanted to live in the Rockies, but I had been teaching out in Northern California. So um, just a one semester deal. And so I started looking there and I went to Washington, Oregon, Idaho, driving around, driving around, looking for what real estate, like signs and companies and driving around, actually giving readings at little bookstores in the mountains from my collection. And, uh, and then while I was in town going and finding a realtor and looking for land or a cabin or both. And so eventually you get to Colorado. Eventually I get to Colorado. And where are you, like, what towns are you, are you reading in in Colorado? Uh, Steamboat. Um, actually, the night before I saw the ranch, I read in Steamboat Springs. They had a thing called the Literary Sojourn. I read with Annie Prue, which was a big deal for me at that no time. And uh, went down, uh, I'm trying to think where else, might have read in Crested Butte that time, working my way down to Creed. And um, Creed is in the southwest part of the state. It's on the eastern side of the San Juan Mountains. Actually, um, Antonia Nelson and Robert Boswell, who are friends of mine, told me to check out Creed while I was looking. They had heard about it. Doesn't Antonia live in Telluride? She, they have family property in Telluride. That's Maybe. right. Since then, I think they sold the Telluride place. I'm not certain. But they bought a ghost town um, as one does, <laughs> they did. They bought the post office and a couple other buildings of a ghost town, um, called Bonanza, which is uh, near Poncha Springs, which doesn't mean anything to anyone, sort of out in the middle of the San Luis Valley. Huh. Um, and they have a place there, but I, at the time they hadn't done that yet. I have a friend who has a friend. It's like a friend of a friend bought a ghost town uh, outside of Los Angeles up in, you know, out in the desert uh-huh. where it's like Joshua Tree. Right. And it's like this old mining town. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some infrastructure, but really, really dilapidated. Right. And they're going to build like a cannabis resort. Oh, wow. 
Like, I guess, which is now a thing. Uh-huh, I guess so. Is, is that what Antonia Nelson is doing with her ghost? I don't think so, no. <laughs> I think they're just holding up there because there's no internet and writing write. and sitting around the fire. Oh, it's so good. I miss Colorado. It's good. I've been missing it. Ever. I mean, I left a long time ago, but there's a part of me that'll always be like, why did I ever leave that paradise? It's so beautiful there. It is beautiful. I mean, we've been very dry. And uh, the last... 12 months have been scarily dry. We, oh, really? we had a giant fire in 2013 in my part of Colorado, southwestern Colorado. Biggest fire in the state, 110,000 acres that burned within a half a mile of the ranch. Yeah, I've been wondering. I have not I have a, a ton of friends there, and I was wondering if this, uh, because we've been getting good rain in Los Angeles, like, have you guys been getting good snow this winter? We're doing much better than last year. Yeah. Um, Wolf Creek, which is the ski area uh, that I can literally see. I mean, I can't really see the ski area, but I can see the mountain that the ski area is on from the ranch. They always get the most snow. They always get 400 inches a year. And right now they're at 200, which is just shy of average where they should be, which is uh, triple what they had this time last year. Okay. So they're doing, we're doing okay this winter. Um, We haven't had... The, the giant dumps that dump four or five feet at once, which we do sometimes. We haven't had that. Still hoping. February can be a very good snow month. Um, but last summer, last summer I have 120 acres and animals to feed. And last summer was the first time ever I had to buy hay for the summer, for the whole summer. I never got a pasture. My pasture just decided not to come up. Damn. Which was the first time ever. So you bought 120 acres mm-hmm. in the pristine Colorado Rocky Mountains for 21 grand. Back in the day, it was 5% down, 5% down. It was 21 grand. It was 5% down. Yeah. And the lady, the widow who sold it to me carried the note because no bank would have lent me money because I was living in my car. Right. (laughs) I love stories like this though. (laughs) Yeah. And it worked out because the story that you more often, or I guess like these are the stories that you hear, the success stories, the story that you don't hear. It's like when people go gambling, it's always like, I won $5,000, but no one ever tells you when they like lost their ass. You know? <laughs> right. They come back from Vegas and they're like, that was fun. You know, it was fun. Well, I think I thought I would lose the ranch. I mean, I think I spent at least a decade thinking I would lose it. And I think I kind of set myself up to lose it because I think that's the kind of stuff I did back then, that kind of self-destructive stuff. So... I think I bought it in an adrenaline rush, pretty sure that I would lose it. Um, but I didn't. I learned how to hustle. You have other self-destructive tendencies? <laughs> I did. Not too many anymore. Okay. Fewer and fewer. Like what? Like substance abuse stuff? And- no, I never did that. Both my parents were alcoholics, so it just scared me. And so I never really did. No, I, I, I ran whitewater rivers at flood stage. I skied avalanche chutes after snowstorms. They they were all outdoor related. You're a badass. <laughs> I used to be a badass. You I mean, come on. And I mean, living- I was a sheep hunting guide in Alaska. Doll sheep hunting guide. It's okay. So let's trace this a little bit. <laughs> you grow up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. under difficult circumstances. Colonel Bob introduces you to the wonders of nature. True teaches you a few things, but not like a, it's not like a comprehensive, I mean, there's still a lot to learn. True. And then you leave home and you, 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 like you said earlier, you found some way to get to college. I did. So what, what was that all about? How did that go? Um, I went to college on a full scholarship and I went to the college that gave me one. I was smart. I got straight A's. Um, so I went to Denison university in Ohio oh, and yeah. it was wonderful. I had wonderful teachers there. All my teachers were like 
aging hippies who wore ceramic peace signs around their neck. And in my childhood home, my father had always said, um, one of these days you realize you're going to spend your whole life in the gutter with somebody's foot on your neck. That was kind of his, (laughs) that was kind of his worldview. And then I went to Denison and these professors were all like, you can do anything you want as long as you work hard and keep the greater good in mind. So it was just like, it was like going from the dark into the sun, you know, that's what college should be. It was, it was liberal arts. I'm a big champion of liberal arts. It was wonderful. And it was wonderful for me. I felt like I'd come out of, you know, the gulag into heaven. And, um, and that's where I read Edward Abbey. And that's where I really yearned to go out West and you get radical politically. Mm, uh, no, that's been a slow burn, but now I am. I mean, it, it's, you know, I got, I, I, I got political environmentally and a little bit feminist wise, but no, it, it's, I had to grow into that and I had to feel like I was the grown up in the room, which I didn't feel for a long time. What do you mean? Um, I had to stop feeling like my elders had it taken care of. And then I realized, you know, about 10 years ago, I was the elder, but there's a lot of years in between there. That sneaks up on you, right? You know, all of a sudden you're like, oh, shit. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I have become much more outspoken um, in the last, well, in the last two years, in the last five years, in the last 10 years overall. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you talk about like liberal arts, education, uh, professors with uh, ceramic peace necklaces. Right. You know, it's obviously evoking uh, liberal politics, but you talk about living on a 120 acre ranch up in the mountains and that's the kind of don't tread on me. There's a don't tread on me vibe up in the high country and and in the American West. Right. Um, Do you find, I mean, I imagine you must find yourself vibing with that at least a little bit. Um, Living in Creed has been a little different since Trump got elected. Um, it, it did not have this difference when the Bushes were president, you know, this difference is bigger and I am probably, there's only about 500 people in my County and you know them all. uh, Well, I know all their names and, and I am probably the only person who speaks out politically, um, regularly on media. And so it's been a little, I, I, the other morning I woke up, uh, this is back in November and it was four in the morning and I heard this diesel truck just humming, 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 humming. And, and I live, you know, at the end of a long dirt road at the end of a long driveway. And, uh, I looked out my bedroom window and here was a, you know, big truck full of guys in camo. And, you know, it was hunting season, so they were just waiting for something with a rack to walk by. But um, The shooter from the truck? Well, not legally, um, so I can't say that. And these were not locals. These were out-of-staters. But I thought, wow, like, I'm alone here. <laughs> like, I'm alone here at the end of this dirt road at 4 in the morning. And there's, you know, six big men in that truck chugging away. And that that was honestly the first moment I thought, in that particular way. Wow. Like what if they, you know, what if they're one of those people who calls me, uh, names on Twitter? Like what if they're in my driveway for 
some reason other than it's convenient for waiting for an elk to walk by, you know, and, and I had never had that thought. Yeah. It's like, Oh my God, what if these guys are militia? Yeah. I mean, I'm not a libertarian. I'm a liberal and, um, and I, and a progressive. Um, but I, you know, I have come to peace with living in a place where, and in my town, you know, people, people respect one another's politics. People dig each other out of snowstorms. I mean, we're not, I don't live in a, like the wacky rural place that the New York Times is always thinking, right, you know, right. about. I live in a place where people are very respectful and people are likely to say, well, it's more important who becomes the school board president than who becomes president. You know, that we're like, we look out for each other here. You know, that you don't spend too much time in like the weeds, like of uh, bickering back and forth. No. no, no, it's it's a good town with good people, but it, it is much more libertarian. There must than, not be a lot of Twitter. There's in not a lot Creed, of Twitter. Colorado. There's not a lot of Twitter in my particular, <laughs> the top of my valley where I live. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, I think, I, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on politics, but it's like, you know, it is the moment that we're living in, maybe more so than ever. And I just think that like a nuanced conversation around the relationship between um, the individual and the collective is something that, right. I mean, it's the ongoing conversation of the American experiment to a certain degree, but I, I feel like I'm hungry for some nuance and some depth and some reckoning sure. around what does that really mean? Sure. And this is true. And this is true. And this is true. And this is true. Yeah. It's not one or the other. Did you see Amy Irving's book, Desert Cabal? No. She wrote this book, little book, uh, but but she's cranky and feisty in all the best ways. And she's writing back to Edward Abbey's Desert Solitaire. And mm. she's saying, you know, Desert Solitaire is not going to work anymore because there's too many of us out there on our mountain bikes. So we have to have a cabal. You know, we have to talk together about what we're going to do about the mess we've made. Here. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a powerful little book. Well, I remember um, for some reason, whenever I think of Edward Abbey, I think of a um, epigraph or not an epigraph, but a dedication in one of Hunter Thompson's books. Mm. Speaking of like what people who lived in the West, Western writers, but he like dedicated his, his one of his books to Ed Abbey, and mm -hmm. he, he put who worked the graveyard shift. Mm -hmm. And I think in like I have such a, um, affection for, um, I don't know Colorado, the American West. I I'm not I'm no great um, outdoorsman, but I did hike the Appalachian Trail, which my listeners are going to kill me for mentioning <laughs> for the, like the six thousandth time. <laughs> But I spent like three months outside, sure. which is not um, a normal experience. That's right. 
And um, especially, I think, the writers and thinkers who arrived at um, conclusions about the state of our ecology maybe earlier than others. Right. Uh, I have a special uh, affection for. Sure. You know, because it was lonely to be speaking about this stuff back when Ed Abbey was publishing. That's right. And now I think it's coming to a head and, or hopefully it's coming hopefully. to a head. You know, so. And, and that's one thing over the course of writing Deep Creek. I mean, I, you know, I, I read, I read all the environmentalists, you know, in the 90s and the 80s and even the 70s. You know, that's sort of the writers I really grew up on. So it wasn't that I was unaware, but I think 10 years ago, if I were speaking honestly, I would have said, oh, well, you know, there's wilderness somewhere, like in Siberia or in the Arctic or Patagonia. Like, yeah, there's places that we're not, we don't have our hands in. But I don't think that's true anymore. I think, especially with the melting sea ice, you know, the the oil companies can go anywhere. I was just going to say, that's like the game. That's right. how perverse it has gotten. Right. Where they're like, we actually want the polar ice to melt right. so we can get that oil no. underneath and cash in because it's like a trillion dollars worth of oil. No, I was up there in the Eastern Canadian Arctic a couple of years ago, and it's, you know, it's, there isn't any more. There's no more wilderness, not really. And uh, there's no vast tracts of land. And, um, you know, and, and it's, and, and at the same time I was doing all that, I've been working at the Institute of American Indian Arts and getting educated. Where's that? It's in Santa Fe. Okay. I work in the in the low res MFA program. That's where Tommy was my student, Tommy Orange, and author of there there, author of there there, and um, you know I've gotten an education in this country's history that I didn't have prior. You know, it's not like I was walking around ignorant, but um, in the last ten years, just a number of things have happened between the climate catastrophe and my learning about the way um, we've treated. Native Americans that have made me much more active. I've been called to be more active basically by those two experiences. That's great. Hmm. Um, so you buy this ranch. Yes. <laughs> After working as like a river guide, river guide, hunting guide, hunting guide. Do you hunt? I don't hunt. I've never shot anything. I was a really good hunting guide in Alaska. Like which, what you track animals. Um, it was one hunter, one guide, 10 day hunts, trying to shoot a doll sheep, which is a big horned wild sheep. Um, but the area, the game area that, that I, I guided in, the, it required a full curl. In other words, it requ requ required a sheep that was probably at least seven or eight years old that had grown horns. his horns all the way into a full curl. So many, many hunts we didn't kill. That's what it's called, a, fur, a, full, a full curl. As opposed to like a crimp. Three-quarter curl. Okay. <laughs> yeah, very good. Um, and so it was a lot of climbing, a lot of backpacking, a lot of hiking, 10-day hunts, and we only killed about 30% of the time. Oh. And so I did that. And it was great. I loved it. You know, I have to say, I loved it. And uh, But I never shot anything myself. You ever have a wild animal encounter that was dangerous? Oh, sure. Um, it's bare. You know, it's it's grizzly Gri bear country. And, and if you shoot a sheep, a ram... It takes, you know, hours and hours to gut it and prepare all the meat for travel and prepare the cape for travel and all of that. And we're backpack hunting. So most likely you're going to shoot um, very late in the day, in the late Alaskan twilight day. 
and then you're going to spend the night with your carcass. <laughs> and in, why, why, in why most country. likely shoot late in the day? That's when they're out? Yeah, they move. So it's either dawn or dusk. But dawn or dusk are very close together in, you know, August in Alaska. Right. There's only a handful of hours of dark. So what, you got this carcass and then grizzly bears smell it. Right. They come snooping around. That's right. What do you do? You encourage them to go away. <laughs> <laughs> After soiling yourself, you very politely, because, uh, yeah, you don't want to mess with a grizzly. You don't. Did you ever see Grizzly Man? Um, I didn't, but I did see um, the other one, which is so great, by the Canadian Film Commission. What's it called? Project Grizzly. I recommend it so highly. What is it? What is it? It's about a guy um, in Canada who is underemployed. And he decides he's going to build a grizzly bear proof suit. And he and his buddies go down to the gas station and they plan this grizzly bear proof suit. And they do Mach 1, Mach 2, Mach 3, Mach 4, Mach 5 um, to get it. And they, they throw each other off the backs of trucks and they build like a catapult. So a log hits the suit with them inside it. It's a wonderful film. Wow. Have you ever seen Hands on a Hard Body? No, but I know <laughs> of it. I want to say I like started it or something, mm -hmm. you know, but I want to see it. I anyway, it's it's kind of in the same category, but... Does anybody die? In Grizzly, in Project Grizzly? Yeah. No. Okay. Nobody dies. All right. Nobody gets eaten. I'm not going to tell you what happens at the end because it's very funny, but I'll spoil it. Okay. But no, nobody dies. No bears die. No humans die. All right. Nobody at all dies. Yeah. Uh, well, I just, I don't know. Like, I it just... It, the reason I bring, I guess I bring up Grizzly Man just because of, uh, it's like an obvious connection, but it's a, the point I guess is that they are, uh, extre extraordinarily powerful, dangerous animals. Like you don't want, I mean, I don't want to overstate it. I think if you're respectful and you know a thing or two, you can probably be okay. Right. But as, if, if one of them is super hungry and comes calling, you're, you're sort of effed unless you have a really good shotgun. <laughs> sure. I mean. You're in, you're in the bear's territory, and the bear is the alpha predator. And I, you know, I think, I mean, I, I didn't see Grizzly Man, but I know the story. And my impression is that he got a little too sure of his ability uh, to communicate, to, yeah, to say the least. <laughs> Isn't that true? It's like, yeah, it's an absurd story in a lot of ways. Yeah. But also, I mean, it's just like you just can't make this shit up. It's one yeah. of those. Um, truth well, is stranger. One thing that's so great about Project Grizzly is he keeps calling the bear the old man. <laughs> and so there's this understory about the guy's father and you can just feel it in there. It's so powerful. And the filmmaker never acknowledges it. You know, he just, it just lets it be. I think there might be like, there is something, some truth to, uh, the notion that people who become maybe too, enamored of wildlife mm. and wild settings sure have deep problems with people <laughs> it's like people who people who love animals too much regardless it could be dogs you yeah. know it's like i love dogs and i think it's like an expression of how disappointing they find people which i can empathize with <laughs> yeah but, i i might be one of those dog people but i um me too <laughs> i've always had a dog but I, I've worked kind of up to people. I've let my dogs teach me how to be better with people. People are hard to train. They are. They're a pain in the ass. They are. And uh, dogs are the best people, I think. They're great. Yeah. 
I don't know how to not have a dog. I finally, like, I, I keep thinking every time I lose a dog, I'm like, I just, I'm done. Right. It sucks too bad to go through all this. But then uh, after my last dog died, it was like three or four months later, I'm on the internet, like Googling dogs and like looking at pictures all day. I'm the same way. I have a dog that's in kind of dire straits right now while I'm out on this book tour. He's he's actually doing really well the last two days, but it's been really up and down. What kind and of dogs do you have? I have Irish wolfhounds. Wow. Why, why that kind of dog? Um, a long time ago when I first was living at the ranch, a guy came through town and he wasn't a guy I would have taken a restaurant recommendation from or a book recommendation from. He was just some a friend of a friend. But he had just lost his Irish wolfhound, whose name was Zaphod. And he showed me a picture of Zaphod with all four feet on the ground, drinking out of the kitchen tap. And just the way he talked about that dog just stuck with me. They're I had, huge. They're very big. How, many, how much do they weigh? About 155, as my, my male does. Bam. How many of them you got? Two. Okay. Two right now, but I've had as many as four. They've become my thing. And, I, and I, you know, I, I was a mutt person. I was a go-to-the-pound person, and I accidentally got hooked. Do you breed them? Uh, no. No. And, and, and the bigger dogs don't live as long, right? They live... They don't. So um, it's like, what, six to eight years? Or? Th- that's right. I, uh, my dog, uh, Fenton, that there's an essay about in, in, this, in this book called Mother's Day Storm, um, he lived to be 11, which was really great for an Irish wolfhound male. Yeah. Yeah. But usually eight or nine is about what you get. And that's, you know, with me and my designer food and all the ridiculous things I do to try to be a good dog mom, you know. Right. Well, yeah. you're on a ranch. You can do the designer food right there, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> or at least your neighbor can hook you <laughs> yeah, up with. That's right. Uh, what, like in terms of the breed, like what are they known for? Are they hunting dogs? or? No, they were bred, you know, to sort of sit at the feet of royalty. And Uh. when all the feudal lords went out thumping each other, they were left to protect the women and children. They run very fast and they will kind of herd, but they're a little unpredictable. Like I'll use them. I have Icelandic sheep and I'll use them to, to, uh, you know, if my sheep get out, I'll use them to bring them back. But you never know when one's going to like take a bite out of a sheep's butt. I used to have a border collie Uh that I got in Fruta, Colorado. Oh, nice. Off of a ranch. I'm going to read there at DeZank Books, which is this really cool new bookstore. It's called DeZank? Uh... No, it isn't. The Zank Books is an imprint. Guess why? Okay. That's why it resonates. Never mind. <laughs> it's called Lithic. Lithic. You can see. Yeah. <laughs> you can see how Zank is related to Lithic <laughs> in my brain. Uh, it's called Lithic Books. In Fruta. And and apparently it's the coolest bookstore. And they have they have an imprint too. But I haven't been there yet. But I'm going there in a couple of weeks. I'm excited. Yeah, like my old coffee shop. Speaking of imprints and just like the publishing environment that we live in now, it's so, like so cool. Is that uh. My coffee shop that I used to hang out in all the time and like did like my earliest like you know reading and writing when I was uh, just out of college is uh, called Trident oh. in in Boulder on like the west end of Pearl Street uh-huh. not far from the Boulder bookstore right and they have an imprint now oh that's nice they publish little books that's cool I'm like that's so cool that is cool and I'm glad the place is still there at yeah. this point, you know you're always glad to like know that little like cafes and bookshops are surviving yeah. Well, everyone loves Lithic, and I can't wait to go. Well, and cool. and Fruta has become quite, you know, the mountain bike capital, and it has really good organic pizza and really good coffee and all kinds of things that never used to be out I there. I was going to say, when I was there, it was just a bunch of ranches and cattle, and it was, I mean, I think, I mean, this was mid-90s, so. 
Yeah, you can ride the Kokopelli Trail all the way from Fruta to Moab on your mountain bike. So it's become a fun place. Damn. Yeah. Things have changed. It's true. Um, so you're on this ranch. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You buy it. It's just you. Most of the time. And you're up there. And I have to imagine the learning curve was pretty steep. Oh, my gosh. And, and like how much of a demystification did you go through? Because like I was kind of saying at the beginning, uh, when you first got here, it's like, wow, this is like a fantasy of mine. Right. I have 120 acres up in the mountains. Um, I'm sure a lot, there are many moments of an extraordinary beauty and like awesomeness. It's true. But there must also be a lot of hardships that you have to take on living up there in the elements. Well, it's 9,000 feet. So the solar destruction of things is profound, you know, and then of course, 35 below and then five feet of snow at one time, you know, not, not so much anymore, but it was that way. And I said, when I moved in, like the tasks fell into two categories, the things I didn't know how to do and the things I didn't know, I didn't know how to do yet. (laughs) You know, it was like that. Um, my neighbors helped me. I mean, it's humbling. Everything breaks and all of the sweet ones die. Like that's the rule of ranching. You know, what do you mean all the sweet ones die? Well, speaking of bears, we had a bear come and for the first time ever in my 25 years there, a bear broke into the barn, ripped the door right off the barn, a black bear and, uh, and killed all the, the lambs this year, killed all this year's lambs. We've never had that happen in all the years I've been there, but it was very sad. And the, 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 the use it killed because it came back, it stalked us. It came back four different times. It broke a window. No matter what we did to protect the sheep. Once it knows that there's food in there. And you know, that it didn't eat. That's the other thing. It didn't eat them. It, just it left them. them. It just killed them to kill them. Damn. Yeah. See, like, that's the thing. Like, this is where Werner Herzog, like the Werner Herzog uh, voiceover comes in. Where he's like, nature is a cruel place. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't see the universe. That's what I'm saying. I that's mean, what I'm saying. Has that, but I mean, did you go into it? Um, I imagine as a lover of nature, you might have gone into it with more of a starry-eyed view and did uh, living and working this ranch, living on and working this ranch, inure you to some of those more idealistic visions of what it's like to live uh, in the wild? Um, I would say so. I mean, I think I would say it a slightly different way. I would say one thing the ranch has been over the 25 years I've been there has taught me how to hold the brutality and the ugliness next to the joy and the beauty, you know, which seems to me to be the lesson of right now. Like the, the, the ranch has, has helped me understand that if you're going to be grateful for the Alpenglow and the explosion of the lupin all over your pasture, you have to find a way to be grateful for the bear who comes with its own set of lessons or the fact that like the mean donkey sort of bullies the nice donkey to death because that's how it works on a ranch. Um, it's, um, and the fire, you know, and the flood and the no pasture last summer. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's extreme. And, um, and I now know how to sweep my own chimney. You know, I, how do you do that <laughs> with, uh, you getting in there with, no, <laughs> with, with, uh, a sectioned, uh, handled 
giant brush that's like three stories tall. My house is only one story tall, but you have to get all the way to the basement and you have to start above the roof. So you you twist all these sections together and you get on the roof and it's a big coarse brush and you get up there and you scrub for half an hour. Do you have heat? You have heat or do you just... I do have heat. Oh, okay. So I mean, I mean, it depends what you mean by heat. I have a wood stove yeah. and I have propane backup so that the house won't freeze if the wood stove goes out. It, the, the propane isn't really enough to heat it, but the, the wood stove heats it. So I get four cords of wood every fall. I get 250 bales of hay every fall. You have a, you have a wood stove. I do. That's old school. <laughs> it's good. But it works. Yeah, it works great. So you're just, you're burning a fire pretty much 24 seven in the in winter. winter. Yep. And then what's your favorite season? It's gotta be summer, right? No. Um, no, because we get our fires in June. So usually May is dry and then we wait for the monsoon, which is the same monsoon that you guys get in Arizona gets. If you get it, um, it's, it's, Wait, uh, we get a monsoon. Do you get a monsoon? I don't know. Maybe you don't. Arizona does. <laughs> Our monsoon comes from the south. The monsoon is before my time. <laughs> okay, never mind. I guess you guys don't have a monsoon, but but like Tucson has a monsoon. You know, it comes up from the Gulf, I think. Um, but. But anyway, our monsoon should start on the 4th of July. So when the rest of the West is burning, we're usually okay, you know, because our fire season is so early, which is nice because it means we get the resources um, because they're not so taxed as they are. (laughs) If you're going to have a a wildfire, have it early. (laughs) If you're going to have a (laughs) 110,000 acre wildfire. Have you ever been, has your property ever been burned? Um, It hasn't. There was the West Fork fire, which was the largest fire in Southwestern Colorado history, came within a half a mile of the property. And we were on standby to evacuate for more than three weeks. I took all my animals to Gunnison. Um, How far are you from Gunnison? uh, Two hours. Two hours. And um, it was incredible. I mean, one of the longest chapters in the book is called Diary of a Fire. And, you know, we became fire expert, internet fire experts, you know, learning all the technology, all the probabilities, all the numbers. I mean, I could give a class in fire, you know, in, in Western wildfire. Um, and it was an amazing time. I mean, we had, we have, I said, just over 500 people in the County. And at one point we had like 2,200 firefighters, um, trying to save our houses and, uh, bless those guys. Yeah. No kidding. No kidding. It was amazing. It was an amazing, um, and with this recent government shutdown, you know, they, they have to start training like right now. And because of the government shutdown, they weren't even able to start the hiring process. And so we were all watching that. I mean, anybody who lives now in the American West is, has to be fire savvy because if it hasn't come for you yet, it's coming for you. Uh, everybody should be on the lookout for Pam's next book. Firefighters are my weakness. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Firefighters are also my weakness. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's scary to think about what the future holds when it comes to climate. You know, you read these predictive uh, articles and scientific papers and it doesn't paint a picture that allows you to sleep much, you know, like you, you just go, Oh God, like, this ship has sailed. Uh, you know, do you like, what does it look like? Isn't Colorado going to be a desert? Like, isn't the yeah. snow going to end? Yeah. Ski culture is going to be gone. You know, I, I talked with an earth scientist recently and he said, um, he said, you know, the future of the earth looks really bad in the hundred year frame, but in the 500 year frame, it looks pretty good. 
He said, there won't be hardly any people left, but the ones who will be here will have learned a lot. And I think that's, you know, I think that's where we are. I think. So where should I buy real estate now? <laughs> somewhere, wet, somewhere wet and drippy. Um, you know, I've heard like, the, no, I've heard like the Pacific Northwest is maybe the place to go because of its biodiversity gets a lot of precipitation. But then I read that article that everybody read on the internet, uh, you know, a couple of years ago about the, uh, the fault line out in the, um, Pacific ocean off the coast of Seattle and Portland. Right. And I was like, well, there goes Seattle and Portland. <laughs> I, I don't think it's going to be about like saving ourselves individually. <laughs> I I'm just thinking we, about me. I think when we get to that point, <laughs> um, I mean, I do think, you know, I think there's hope in that statement. I think, you know, we are, the earth's most determined parasite and she will shake us off her back and go on no matter how far down we take her, you know? Um, but I think it's really important not to find that idea. So unpalatable, the idea of the earth without us or whatever that like we turn away now and stop celebrating it. I mean, there again is that thing, like you hold the grief, you hold the wonder. I, I was up in the Eastern Canadian Arctic and had the amazing good fortune of coming upon 800 narwhal, the annual narwhal ni- migration. My daughter's, um, she's eight years old. Her basketball team mascot is the narwhals. No, yeah, they they're, picked it. They're super, they're super intriguing and charismatic beasts. And I had the once in 10 lifetime opportunity to spend an afternoon in a boat running alongside them. And, you know, you see the narwhal and, and you think this is the most amazing day of my life as an outdoors woman. And then you think, okay, they're the first to go because they need the sea ice to hunt. So they say that narwhal are even more threatened than the polar bear. Jesus. And then the neck, very next day we come upon, um, we, we think it's an island. Like, what the heck is that out there? We get closer and closer to it. It's five miles by five miles square. And uh, probably 200 feet high above the water, 200 feet sitting outside the water. It's the piece of the Greenland ice sheet that, remember in 2012, when the biggest piece fell off and everyone was like, oh, climate change? It was that. It was that piece. Just floating. Just floating. Oh. And it was so beautiful. It it looked like it looked like, you know, the lightest blue porcelain. And it had rivers carved on the sides of it. So massive waterfalls falling off of it. And, you know, every shade of blue on the sides of the ice. So so there you are seeing like the most glorious sight imaginable and understanding in the same moment that it's evidence of how doomed we are. That's like one of the, that's whenever I'm watching like a really smoggy sunset in Los Angeles and it's like, <laughs> right. this is fucking gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so it's like, what do we do? I mean, I, my, what I say in my book and what I'm trying to say is, you know, we keep singing about the beauty because who are we if we don't, you know, are you a fatalist? Is it, is the, has the ship sailed? Is there anything, if we elect or somebody takes over soon and starts to try to do bold things like can we can we stave off any of the worst of this or is it are we just fucked i don't know because i'm not a scientist i do know that i find a lot of hope in young people i think it's amazing that those parkland kids might take the nra down like wouldn't that be stunning i would love that um you know things like that there's lots of young farmers there's lots of young i mean i i 
I try to put my faith there. Can we scientifically stop the annihilation of our species on this planet? I have no idea. Seems like we can't. (laughs) From everything I read, it seems like that's unlikely. But that I just don't think that means we should throw up our hands and drill the Arctic. You know, I think we should. um, You know, no one told us how long we were going to get ever. You know. Um, so, so we, we love it every day. We appreciate every day and we fight, you know, to, to, to get this administration's foot off the throttle of heading for the edge of the cliff. You know, it's it's like, it's even shit like asbestos is fine. Yeah. Like there's just like, like, it's like they're trying to be as shitty as possible. It seems like that. Like, I don't get these people. I don't get how their minds work. Yeah. It's not good. Have you ever seen a mountain lion? I have. Really? Um, like at close range? Yes. How did that go? Um, You're still here, so. I only ever saw one. And um, and I, um, they're, they're, speaking of Edward Abbey, it's, it's not like he's the only author I read, but he keeps coming up. He has the, a great essay about almost shaking hands with a mountain lion and then being like, okay, no, (laughs) like, so he didn't do, he didn't make the grizzly man mistake. Um, it's not your friend, but I, I had never seen one, even though I've spent so much time in the desert and, um, but I was in California and, um, up above Sacramento, like up in grass Valley. And I was hiking a little ways up above grass Valley. And I was hiking with one of my big wolfhounds, a, a girl wolfhound. And we were hiking along and I got down, I took her down to to the creek below the trail so she could get a drink. And this guy comes down and he's, you know, a little like, I didn't feel great about it. You know, I hike by myself constantly. And, you know, so it's not like this, I'm naive to any of this, but he came down and he tried to talk to me. And then next thing you know, he had uh, taken his pants down. And, and so, so, I just and this is your mountain lion story. This is my mountain lion story. Yes, Damn. it is. Yes, it is. And so we started up the hill, and he started to follow us. And I said, "My dog will kill you." I said, "What's wrong with men? What the fuck?" And um, and my dog would not have killed him. My dog would have licked him. Right. But my dog weighed 150 pounds, and so he stopped. And then we just ran, and we started running, and we and Rose and I ran down the trail. And uh, it was, you know, pretty much downhill. And so we, I just wanted to put as much distance as I could. And as I'm running down the trail and I'm probably a half a mile from him, this mountain lion jumps, you know, because of course you're not supposed to run, right? And this mountain lion just leaps right in front of the trail in front of Rose and I, like just eye to eye. You know, we were probably um, 15 yards apart, 20 yards apart. You're like, I'm fleeing this like weird pervert. (laughs) Right. I finally got a half a mile away. <laughs> now I got to deal with this. And Rose, you know, was like, like <laughs> kitty, kitty. And the mountain lion looked at me and we all looked at each other for a minute. And then she just leapt into the woods and went around us. And I was like, go get him. <laughs> go get him, kitty. And that was it. That, that was my was mountain lion story. Damn. Yeah. Were you scared? Because this isn't, I've seen a bear. I've never seen a lion. I've seen like a maybe a lynx i don't know i've seen some sort of mountain cat mm-hmm. at a distance mm-hmm. it wasn't i didn't feel anything predatory happening mm-hmm. so it was just kind of beautiful and curious and I, i've kind of made eye contact with a black bear before 
um, it was fine. Like when it actually happens, right. it's not an experience that I found to be loaded with fear. Um, I guess it would change if the thing started charging me. But like when you were actually eye to eye with that mountain lion, did you sense like, okay, this could be it? Or was it more of... No, if I had the choice of being raped by the dude or being <laughs> clawed to death by the mountain lion, I would have taken the mountain lion. I, I really wasn't afraid. And and when I tell the story, it, like I say something like, you know, I, I, I sicked it, you know, I sicked her on him, you know, and there was something of it in that moment, though. I'm not sure I quite got all the way there, but I really wasn't afraid of the mountain lion. I was so excited to see one. I even wrote an essay about having never seen one. I mean, I was so excited to see one. And plus I had Rose, you know, I had a dog who was nearly as big as the cat, but the cat was long. I mean, the cat was longer than Rose and Rose was a 150 pound Irish wolfhound. So, um, the cat was beautiful, not quite as tall as Rose, but longer. And her tail was so long. And I see, you see, I've made her a her and I, because that's how she was in my mind. She wasn't going to hurt me. She was going to hurt him. What if she did? I guess we'll, we'll never know. We'll never know. Well, I, uh, you know, they have one. Uh, there's one that lives right in Griffith Park here in Los Angeles. Is that right? It's like sort of like this, like, and, and it's all by itself because of the, I mean, it's basically boxed into this park. I don't know how it came in across the 101, mm-hmm. but it's been living solo and it's kind of inbred. I think mm-hmm. there's a, um, you know, a collection of mountain lions in, in the mountains around Los Angeles that's sort of has inbred over time. Right. So it's not like necessarily the healthiest cat, right? but it's in there. Right. And it's like Griffith park is, is big for a city park, but right. it's unusual to have a lion living inside of a city park. Is it collared or do they have, I a, think it's yeah. collared. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's called like P 21 or uh-huh. something. Right. But I hike up there, uh, sometimes and I'm always like, where is that thing? <laughs> is it watching me? <laughs> it might be, <laughs> you know, they, they definitely see you before you see them. Sure. Though it sounds like you might've startled this one because you were running and maybe sometimes I guess they don't. Well, they do say, you know, that runners are what attracts them because they see the prey, you know, they see the motion and they run for it. And I didn't feel like I startled her. I felt like she might've come to see if I was something edible. Well, because but I feel like when they, when they are uh, in predatory mode, they're so fast and so quiet and so sneaky. They come from behind. Like you wouldn't even know until the thing's yeah. like on you. She jumped right in front of us, you know, on the trail. She came out of the woods and landed and we like literally skidded to a stop. <sighs> wow. Well, I'm glad I asked that question. It was so cool. <laughs> so what has nature taught you? I mean, you, you say that you got this education on this ranch um, you went looking for something. Um, well, I went looking for a home, you know, a home where I would feel, um, like I could be still, like I didn't always have to be in motion because motion is my natural state and I really like it. Um, I guess, um, I mean, it, it taught me so many things, but it, it taught me commitment. You know, um, I call it the single greatest love story of my life. Like I, I had to commit. I have to fix so many things and and I'm not good at fixing. It taught me how to, you know, fix a water pump with a steak knife and the heel of my cowboy boot, you know. I it it taught me to be resourceful. 
but more it taught me how to like dig in and commit. I mean, I do have a lot of help now. I have sort of unofficial writers residencies where some of my grad students come and help me and stay on the ranch for six months or a year while they're finishing their book. And, and I travel a lot for work. And so they watch the animals when I'm not there. And I, I haven't done it alone by any means. Um, my neighbors are super helpful. My hay guy is amazing. It's good um, to have a good hay guy. It's so good to have a good hay <laughs> it's guy. It's hard to find a good hay guy these days. <laughs> um, you know, so many people have helped me out. Um, and so that's another thing. Like it, it taught me how to ask for help. You know, it taught me how to say uncle when I really don't know. But it also taught me how to be resourceful. It taught me how to use like simple tools. Um, but I think most of all, it taught me um, maybe gratitude. You know, I, I mean, I, I, a lot of things have taught me gratitude. My, my writing career has taught me gratitude. My students teach me gratitude. But, but that ranch, like when I drive around the corner, the last corner after I've been out on the road, even if I've been to a fabulous place, I turn the last corner of the Rio Grande makes this giant horseshoe turn and my whole body just relaxes, you know, and I didn't have, um, a, a safe place. By the way, when I come to my house, my entire body does not relax. <laughs> well, mine does when I get around that last corner, even if when I get out of the car, Oh my God, the basement's flooded. And, the there's a bird stuck in the chimney and there's a bear on the, the power's out again and the internet is going to be down for six days or whatever you know yeah there's a lot of that um but the quality of the sky there the quality of the air just yeah. the way i feel yeah and if you're from colorado you know this i mean there's a quality of of light and life and life and and just the air, you know, like the color of the air or the clarity of the air. And, and I don't really just mean clean air. I just mean there's a, a thing the light does in the high Rockies that it doesn't do, even in the Sierras, you know, at their most beautiful. There's just something about the Rocky Mountains. And it's, it's a little like Tibet, actually. I went to Tibet and I got off the plane. I was like, whoa, I had a past life here as a monk, but it could have just been the Colorado likeness of it. The you light know? was familiar. It was so familiar. Yeah, no, I, I get it. I like, uh, some of the best like nature experiences of my life have been hiking up in the Rockies. I used to hike out like almost every day when I was like my last two years of college, like that's when the light went on Yeah, and I was like, Oh, this is right here. Right. And then it was like, once I started going and then I got a dog. So my dog needed to go do something and right. I just, uh, I got hooked. Yeah. You, you keep the dog because it keeps you living how you want to live. I, I think so. It's totally right. Yeah. They keep you going. Um, so how does your, I mean, I imagine it's got to be so peaceful to write. It's it, good. If you're in a good mode to have that quiet, like what does your uh, routine look like? Well, I don't have a good routine because I teach so much. I, I, I teach at the Institute of American Indian Arts. I teach at UC Davis so one, just one quarter a year. Jump in the car and go or fly? Or? Um, well, the, the IA is low res. And then I teach at Davis. It's kind of down to one quarter a year. So that's 10 weeks in Davis. I run a nonprofit called Writing by Writers that we put on six events a year for non-university-based writing education. You know, I'm I'm a moving target and I... And I love teaching. I'm really, really rewarded by teaching. I, I truly love it. And especially now with books like Tommy's and 
Uh, I have three Flannery O'Connor winners. I have a Drew Hines Prize winner. These are, you know, I mean, now I'm old. And so so I have all these students. You're not that old. I'm not that old. But I'm old enough to have students that are achieving amazing things. And that's gratifying. Oh, it's so good. It's like you're a midwife. It, it is. It is. And it's the, the way I parent. You know, I don't have kids. So I have like 20, 27-year-olds who come for Thanksgiving, you know, because I've helped birth their books into the world in one way or another. Um, so I love that part of my life. Wait, so you have much. lots of people come to your house for Thanksgiving? I do. You do. Is this like an annual thing? Um, well, it could be Christmas. No, it's just when, once people, once these young writers have stayed at the ranch, they want to come back. By the way, I'm coming this summer with my whole family. <laughs> That's fine. You know that, right? You can. You can. You're welcome <laughs> People to. just camp out? Like, do you have space for people? Or? I do. I have these, I have ranch gatherings where I just invite like 12 of my writer friends, young or old, and people show up and meet each other and interact and we cook and we hike and we talk about books and how to save the country and you know is there any like psychedelics nothing's like that is happening no <laughs> no psychedelics. Okay. well maybe it's happening but i'm not aware of it <laughs> by the way you're in los angeles right now whoever's watching your ranch is having a uh, vision quest <laughs> on your property it's, it's, it could happen <laughs> it could it could happen but that sounds great like summer camping great. and people there it's and- become a gathering place and i love that i love that about it um so so but i do there was a cabin on the ranch that the homesteader lived in all his life. He was, he wasn't quite born there, but his father homesteaded when he was a very, very young boy. He died in the sixties. He lived there all his life. He's buried on the hill. His name's Bob Pinkley. His ghost is present to many people who come visit me, but not me for real. Oh, for real. See, ghosts never show themselves to me. Knock on wood. I a mean, like, few ghosts have showed themselves to me in my life, but not him, but so many different people interact with him like they see do they actually see him or is it just more like oh he knocked over a a glass or something um i don't know i you know because i'm not inside their eyes i can't tell you but everyone from people who who have ability to see ghosts to people who have never seen a ghost before he is like the most showy ghost apparently because he pops out and they describe him to me exactly how he was and they would have no way of knowing that no shit yeah it, he's very present but he just doesn't show himself to me and my friend who does interact with ghosts a lot says that just means he has no problem with me that he's cool okay that's great that now this makes me feel better about having not seen any ghosts <laughs> that's right <laughs> anyway his cabin I, so i have a house a, a two-bedroom log house hit the cabin he lived and died in is on the property. And I never really wanted to mess with it because so many people saw him. I was like, well, I don't want to mess with his space. But after being there 20 years, it seemed like it was going to fall in. So I just recently um, had it restored. And that is now my writing space. So for the first time in my life, I have a dedicated writing space out there in Bob's cabin. And when my friend who does interact with ghosts all the time came up, I was like, well, how does he feel about it? Is this we would it? know? <laughs> huh? Is this like a writer we would know or no? No. Okay. His name's Seth Browder. He's, okay. he's actually friends with a writer named Brian Aspis, who was a student at the Institute. Um, okay. But he's, uh, they're, they're married. Seth and Byron are married. And um, so it's Seth. It's Byron's partner, Seth, but he, he has amazing ability. He has the kind of ability that when you see it in action, you, you can never doubt anything again. What do you mean? 
ability to co- to commune with the uh, <laughs> with the, the, dead. the next dimension. Yeah, they got problems with him. Right? I'll tell you a story. <laughs> All right, I'll tell you a story. So, so do you know Sam Dunn, Samantha Dunn? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've, I know of. Well, she was at a ranch gathering of mine, and so was Seth and By. So were Seth and Byron, and um, and Seth said had never met her. He doesn't particularly read. He, he um, Byron reads to him, but they had no interaction with Sam's past or Sam's books or anything like that. And we were having dinner, and Seth said to Sam. Um, honey, will you go outside with me? And just, I want to tell you something. And Sam said, oh, you can say it here, whatever it is. You can say it in front of these people. These people are my friends. And he said, well, honey, your mom's here. And she wants you to know it's not your fault. You didn't kill her. And you got to let that go or it's going to make you sick. And Sam just burst into tears. I was standing behind her. I put my hand on her back because I thought her heart might fly out of her chest. And this is Sam's story, which is that she went to see her mom in her mom's trailer and there was broken glass and her mom cut her foot and they had a big fight. And so like Sam's been carrying that around forever and there's just no way in the world Seth could have known. I was going to say, so he had no, 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 no way in the world. I mean, Seth didn't, didn't even know who Sam was. What is it with people who can do this? I don't know. It's, it's kind of beautiful. Yeah. And he's helped me out. He's, I've seen him do that like 16 times now, honestly. And he can actually imitate the people that he, like he speaks like not, it's not like speaking in tongues or anything, but he speaks for them. He's like, yeah, she came to me and she just said, bump, bump, bump. And, and then he'll speak almost in the voice of that person. It's so uncanny. Wow. It's amazing. And does he come to every summer? Uh... He comes a lot. He can't always come. Oh, you you got to have him there. <laughs> He's the draw. I know. Everybody's like, do me next. Do me. And anyway, um, so I asked him, of course, after I painstakingly found the guy who loved the old cabins and wouldn't change it, but just made it so it wouldn't fall down, but also made it so it was a writing, it could be a writing space for me because he was a very short guy, Bob. And so it had a very low ceiling. So we raised the roof and we did some things, but we tried to keep the spirit of it. Did you do this yourself? No, no. A guy, um, a a wonderful guy named RJ Mann, who's like in love with the old buildings and takes, you know, all the time and the care to restore them. And, uh, and so I asked Seth, I was like, well, what does Bob think of the renovation? Because <laughs> I was really worried about it. And he said, oh, he just sees it the old way. He doesn't see it. Interesting. I know. I thought it was so cool. Because I put like a red wood stove in there. I paid like $500 extra for the red, which I thought was such a girly thing. And I thought <laughs> Bob would hate it. But apparently he doesn't even see it. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, there's just more than meets the eye. <laughs> there is. There is. <laughs> there is. <laughs> Um, I'm just, I'm a little envious, I guess, of people who have the ability to like be in touch with that stuff. It's amazing. It would give you so much of a different perspective. You know, you would have to be convinced that we're not going to live forever. Well, and also there's just like, it would just be that, uh, like a very insistent and clear reminder that there is an element of magic Mm -hmm. 
to mm-hmm. the existence that we're in and to whatever, like whatever it is that we're seeing with our eyes and perceiving with our senses is just a fraction of what's actually happening here. Right. And like, I think it's, it's gotta be a little bit easier to be in touch with that when like Bob's talking to you. Did you read Lincoln and the Bardo? No, not yet. I really loved it. And I mean, to paraphrase badly, what the ghosts in Lincoln and the Bardo do is they like they can't really make us do things, but they can swirl around us and like circle us and push us kind of with their energy. And the night after that very ranch gathering, um, I believe that Bob came and and swirled around me because for the first time in like 25 years, the night everyone left, I was doing Facebook and. You do that. There is Facebook on the ranch, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> there is. This Facebook. is kind of comforting. That- I was putting pictures up on Facebook, and one of the things that Seth had told me that Bob said was that he wished I could find a partner to help me with the ranch. That he liked it that I was there. That I was the person who had now owned it longer than anyone except him, and that he wanted me to stay and he wanted me to be happy. But I could use some help, which God knows is true. So, in that way that Facebook reads your mind, I was posting the pictures to Facebook, and this ad for a dating site came up called Our Time, which is dating over fifty and and I haven't touched a dating website in like since the beginning of dating websites when we all made fools of ourselves on them right and I went boop, and I really think that was Bob. I think Bob was swirling around me in a Lincoln in the Bardo way, yeah, and I put in like the biggest amount of miles you could for where I live, which was like 150. And of course, three guys came up and two of them didn't have any teeth. And the third one did. <laughs> the third one did. <laughs> and, um, and, and I read about him and he was a Dallas forest ranger. And I sent him a little note. This was August 25th, 2017. And on August 25th, 2018, I married him. No shit. <laughs> and that was all Bob. Wow. I'm pretty sure. Well, congratulations. Thanks. That's wonderful. You might have noticed my smoky bear earrings. Oh, my God. Okay. Mm-hmm. So fi- I wasn't kidding about firemen. No, you weren't. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's like I haven't really told this story to too many people other than my wife. But uh, I like the only time I've ever had any kind of contact with uh the spirit realm because mm-hmm. i'm like i said like i'm not the person that the ghosts show up for and i'm sort of like hey what about me like, <laughs> yeah right i'm open let's see some stuff <laughs> right. i'm like so ready for it and of course they don't they don't ever show but i uh i had a psychedelic experience uh-huh. but it was a grown-up kind of experience not like the uh you know experiences of my wayward youth and i was very like rigorous about it and i wore a sleep mask the entire time so it wasn't like I, I cut off sensory perception. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't uh, about the outside world. Mm-hmm. It was all behind my eyelids. Right. And I spent two hours weeping, which I don't do. I mean, it was like a tour of the world sorrows. It wasn't a bad trip. Wow. But it was just very emotional in a way that like I did not expect. Wow. And I'm going to get emotional talking about it. I was like in it. And it's so hard to talk about because it's a really slippery, like right. ephemeral, like you just, you know, part of me now wonders if it was real, you know, right. and, right. but, um, my aunt Rosalind was killed in a drunk driving accident in 1963. This is be- way before my time, before right. I was even on the planet. Right. And I did not go into the experience thinking of her. 
at all. Like, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? She wasn't in my mind when I started, which you would think would be the case if she showed up, but I'll be damned if I did not have a powerful experience of her presence. Mm-hmm. I can't say that like there was like some image of her and she was like talking to me. No. But it was like, holy shit. Like, right. It touched me. Right. And I, I guess I came away, like in the immediate aftermath, I wrote down a lot. Yeah. And it was just more like, I didn't get it. She died when she was like 22. Right. And she was like, I didn't get a chance to live my life, like live your life for me. Wow. It was basically like the takeaway. And you said like four times ghosts never show up for me. Well, but I mean like, <laughs> not unless I'm like blindfolded on like <laughs> a strong dose. It's quite a lot. Like these other people, they're just like sitting in the kitchen. I'm like weeping in the fetal position on my couch. But it was, uh, it was like the only like, like truly mystical experience. Um, I mean, I guess I like the birth of your children, you know, there, there are right. moments that are but that was next level. Well, how great that she brought you that. I know. And it wasn't just her. Like there were other people, you know, there were other um, people who've crossed over who I sort of like kind of said hello to, but uh, that hers was the most powerful. It was really intense. Yeah. Uh, so again, more than meets the eye. I don't know what to make of it, but it well, wasn't nothing. Well, gratitude, like I said. I mean, yeah. that's, that's a gratitude experience. Yeah, it was something else. I'll have to reread. I wrote like 14 pages in like shaky script, you yeah. know, <laughs> like trying yeah. to like keep it together and figure out, like integrate it and figure out what happened. But I'm going to revisit it and, and try to make some more sense of it. But it was, it was something else. Yeah. No, I'll have to consult with your friend, Seth. And <laughs> Seth is, <laughs> Seth is in high demand, but he's good. Seth's going to be like, Brad, your aunt Rosalind wants you to know you're really fucking high. <laughs> Take it down a notch. <laughs> Uh, well, it is such a joy to meet you. So nice to meet you, um, Brad. And I congratulate you on your ranch. Thank you. And keeping it going. Thanks. That's an achievement, by the way. It is. And 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 here's the best news. Um, on just on Thursday, before I I left on Thursday for this tour, the last thing I did before I left the county was sign the papers to put the ranch into an environmental trust, which is like a three, anywhere from a a one and a half to three year process. And it just happened that it all got finished the day I was leaving for this tour. So So what does that mean? It means that it will keep its agricultural status forever. No matter who owns it. It means that no one will ever be able to drill on it or subdivide it or put a cell phone tower up on it. It's well, there basically goes my plan to buy your ranch, I guess. <laughs> I was I was thinking oil. <laughs> it's basically protected forever. And it you know, it means that the value of the land this the resale value goes down because whoever buys it is limited in what they can do. But it means that so I've been there for twenty five years. I've been on the ranch for twenty five years. And the best way that I could take care of it was to put it in a land trust and make sure that it would never lose its ag status. Which, Good for you. Yeah. So I, I'm, I feel very happy about that and very happy that it, the timing coincided. It was one of those crazy coincidences. But um, it's something I've been working on for a couple of years. And, you know, the, the land trust people have to be interested in it. And then there has to be donors. And then the tax thing has to work out. Like it's a bunch of different bodies have to come together to make it happen. And it and it all came together right at the same day. Basically, the book was born. Bob's got to be happy about it. Yeah, I would think so. At this point, you have to be on good terms with Bob. <laughs> I would think Bob would be really happy. Uh, well, congratulations to you. And I'll see you this summer. 
Okay, sounds good. (laughs) All right, there you go, guys. That's Pam Houston. Her new essay collection is called Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country, available now from W.W. Norton and Company. Pam Houston, Deep Creek. Go get your copy immediately. If you want to find Pam on the Internet, her address is pamhouston.net www.pamhouston.net She's on Twitter at Pam underscore Houston Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total as always for the theme song music Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music If you would like to write to me my email address is letters at otherppl.com You can let me know what you think If you would like to support this program You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget, this podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It is free. The app is free. Go get your app. It's free. It's free wherever apps are. Go to where the apps are and get the free app. Next week on the program, Steve Anwell is my guest, and I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. I want to say he told me Steve Anwell. It's A-N-W-Y-L-L. It's kind of, I think it's Welsh. Steve Anwell, he's got a book out called Welfare on Tyrant Books. He and I had a good talk. Stay tuned for that one. What else can I tell you? My daughter uh, was in a musical last night. She did uh, Mamma Mia. And she sang. It's pretty adorable. I felt proud. I wasn't expecting her to belt it out like she did. And I didn't know she was going to have, like, solos. It's raining again in Los Angeles. I feel hungry. I feel tired. What am I going to do tonight? I don't know. What am I going to eat? I have no idea. Will I sleep? It remains to be seen. (laughs) 